Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. I'm Trish. And today we're going to start off with some true crime episode updates for you. Yeah, I have two updates. One is the Sheila Keen Warren case. This is the killer clown case out of Florida. This was we covered this case season one. So back in the day, episode 14. So her trial is set for October. You've heard me talk about that before. It's for the murder of Marlene Warren, who was murdered 32 years ago in Florida. Her killer had dressed as a clown while delivering flowers. So when she answered Mm. the door, she got shot in the face. The defense attorney for Sheila Keen Warren and her husband, her current husband, Michael Warren, who was the victim's husband at the time, claimed that the prosecutor's office failed to turn over evidence of another suspect. Now, this information came from a letter an inmate who was up in a main prison had sent authorities in 1991, saying a cellmate of his by the name of Edward Barr told him he had been hired to kill Marlene and had done so after having dressed up as a clown. The letter said the deal went down at the Mermaid Bar in West Palm. Now, authorities at the time did track down this Edward Barr. I think he was in Texas or something like that. But they didn't feel he had any helpful information. Like, was this just him saying, you know, from what you read in the paper, and I'm going to add my own spin to it. Mm -hmm. But they did not feel he was a viable suspect in this murder. And so that information wasn't turned over to the defense at the time. So the defense attorneys, again, they want to know, well, why didn't we get this in disclosure? Right. So that's kind of going through the process now. But the kicker to all this is that the letter also stated that who hired this guy to kill the wife was Michael Warren. Oh, my God. Husband. In an interview, Michael Warren said, you know, he was upset that this information wasn't turned over to prosecutors or anything like that. And he said, so that that's not right. And then when they confronted him saying, well, the letter also says that you hired him. Oh, no, that's wrong. (laughs) So we'll see how that turns out. Her trial is scheduled for October. In another update, you've heard me talk about this before, Sophia Tuscon de Plantier. That's three episodes we covered at the beginning of season three. Well, I want to say like December to January. A news article out at the beginning of August claimed that a man had told the Garda of a conversation he had with prime suspect Ian Bailey, where Ian Bailey told him that he had had dinner with Sophie Tuscon de Plantier and her boyfriend at the time, Bruno Carbonet, he when she was separated from her husband at his residence with his paramour at the time, Jules Thomas. Mm-hmm. So he had shared this information. I think he shared it a while ago, but I guess in the reinvestigation, he's also made this statement to the Garda. Ian Bailey claims it's a lie. It's rubbish. It's not true. He never met Sophia Tuscon de Plantier. He always says, I knew of her. I saw her from afar, but I never talked to her. Now, I guess this reporter reached out to Jules Thomas, because they're no longer together, Jules Thomas or Ian Bailey. And Jules Thomas would decline to answer. I think through her daughter, she just wanted to be left alone. Yeah. So the Garda investigation continues. I'd be disappointed if we didn't have an update on Sophie from our resident expert on the case. <laughs> yes. Well, it, the Google alerts come fast and furious. So eventually, <laughs> hopefully, the Garda will come to the point where they actually end up charging someone Mm -hmm. for her crime. All right. Well, that is the uh, latest crime news updates. Wonderful. And then we have a shout out from someone who reached out to us on our website. That's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On our contact page, Eric C., he sent us a message to share his thoughts and insights into the Bernie Teed case that Maddie covered in season one, episode 25. So thank you, Eric C., for reaching out and communicating with us. And if you haven't listen to that episode, make sure you check it out. And uh, once again, thank you, Eric.
Eric for that compliment. All right. So where are we going today? Today, we're going to Columbine. We're going to Littleton, Colorado, because, you know, in an environment with school shootings like we had this year, the next thing we want to do is talk about more of them, right? Just kidding. We're not going to talk about the shootings that much. We're actually going to talk about missing and murdered people in the area who are connected to the shootings, but weren't injured, weren't killed, weren't actually part of the famous school shooting massacre at Columbine High School. Were they present that day at Columbine? They were. So one of the things that I think about when I research cases, including Columbine, you know, I remember when Columbine happened, it's, you know, personal to me in that way that it is to so many people. I think about the victims who weren't killed or visibly injured, but who are left in the wake of a crime to pick up those broken pieces and carry on with their lives. That includes family of the killers, family of the victims, and even just friends. You know, if you think about the Columbine shooting, there were kids going to school that day who were friends with the killers and who had friends die. And we don't have a lot of sympathy for people like that. We don't think about what they're going through, but there's even more. So what? how do they process what they've been through? What happens to them after the fact beyond the headlines? What happened to Columbine student and school shooting survivor Brandy Jo Mallinson, who was last seen around Christmas 2006, for example? Who killed her friends and classmates Nick Kunzelman? and Stephanie Hart Grizel less than a year after Columbine. Today, we'll look at those mysteries and other lesser-known cases from Littleton, Colorado, the community where the infamous school shooting took place. So I have to start out by saying a lot of the people who go to school at Columbine are from Littleton, Columbine High School. It has Littleton's zip code, but technically it's not in Littleton. So before you send emails, I am aware that Columbine High School is technically not in Littleton. It's a zip code thing, but it's right next door and kids who go there are from that community. But this area is located just east of the entrance of America's Rocky Mountains, which is on the suburban outskirts just south of Denver. To get a feel for how breathtaking and beautiful this area is, listen to John Denver's Rocky Mountain High, like you need an excuse to listen to John Denver. And that's also Colorado's state song. Technically, their second state song, they had another one, but the song is so good they added it. There you go. <laughs> Littleton sits at an elevation of 5,351 feet above sea level, and it falls within three counties. This is a little important, Arapahoe, Douglas, and Jefferson. So a lot of what we're going to cover today takes place in Jefferson County, but it's, it's a big area. The community developed during the mid-19th century gold rush. And it grew again in the mid-20th century as an aerospace product manufacturing area. I had no idea. (laughs) Its current population of predominantly white, English-speaking, middle-class citizens is pushing 50,000. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, which is the period we're covering today, it was closer to 40,000. So it's still growing. And fun fact, the fictional town in the animated comedy show South Park is loosely inspired by Littleton as the show's co-creators are from the area. I am a fan of South Park, but I didn't know that. I like their musical Book of Mormon. They also (laughs) did that. Jefferson County's Columbine High School, serving several Littleton neighborhoods, was built in 1973. It was named after Colorado's state flower, and its mascot is the Rebel, in the likeness of an American Revolutionary War soldier, rifle and all. But after the events of April 20th, 1999, the Rebel's rifle was removed. That's the day two senior students planted bombs in Columbine High School's cafeteria, 
and waited in the parking lot with guns and additional explosives to use on students and faculty as they fled from the explosions. The bombs didn't detonate as planned, so the pair entered the school, shooting at many they encountered along the way, especially terrorizing a group of students hiding in the school's library. They ended up killing 12 students and one teacher, injuring dozens more, some of them with permanent physical injuries, paralysis, and then they shot and killed themselves. It was the deadliest massacre in America at the time, which every time I read that, I find it hard to believe. (laughs) And it was one of the biggest news stories of the decade. The incident continues to inspire other school shootings, and the killer's motives continue to intrigue researchers. Police response was another hotly debated topic, with SWAT waiting three hours before entering the building to evacuate the wounded and hiding. A lot of what they do now in schools, what they're teaching, is a program called Stop the Bleed. Unfortunately, if a school shooting was to happen, to teach how to pack wounds and use tourniquets to stop the bleeding, because a lot of individuals they find die from just bleeding out. Mm -hmm. That if rescuers can get there on time and get to them, the better. And I think we saw that with the latest elementary school shooting in Texas, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the children that died, died from bleeding out. Yeah. Because there was a wait time of response. Mm -hmm. Well, and this was before schools had active shooter drills. Mm -hmm. This was before the philosophy of run, hide, fight. Yep. Everyone at Columbine, there were some in in the beginning who ran, but for the most part, they hid. And then they were on their own figuring out what to do from there. It wasn't unprecedented. There were school shootings before Columbine in the 90s, but it wasn't like it is today. Right. (laughs) Right. Yes, from Columbine, all of that has come out. Run, hide, fight. If you can't run to hide, and how to hide in terms of barricading yourself. Mm -hmm. Jefferson County Police interviewed dozens of Columbine students after the massacre, and you can find all of their interviews in a report online. Among them was freshman Brandy Jo Mallinson. She was interviewed on a Tuesday morning, May 11, 1999, three weeks after two classmates attacked her high school, and after she consumed three weeks' worth of constant national news media that included false information. I could do an entire episode, I think, on crimes of sensational journalism and how it affects the survivors. And especially at that time in the late 90s when you didn't have the Internet, it was it was on all the time. Mm -hmm. But I'll stick to this case at hand. And if you are interested in that topic, we have some links in the show notes. And I highly recommend the podcast you're wrong about. They focus on that subject area specifically, kind of debunking what we consumed in the media around that time period. And they even have an episode on Columbine, and it's fantastic. But due to all this inaccurate information swirling around, and as was common among Columbine's traumatized young witnesses, Brandy did recount a few incorrect details, like overhearing an ominous warning from a female student that something was going to happen at school that day, but she wasn't even at school that day, and finding a fake AOL profile after the fact that imitated one of the shooters and saying, oh, this is his profile, I found it. And I think it's important to remind ourselves when we run into things like this, is that Brandy was in the middle of processing trauma, trying to find closure and a way to move forward. Figuring out the killer's motives or any warning signs that she missed is really helpful to her healing and to the investigation. So even though it's not correct, she does the right thing by sharing everything she can think of, even if it is rumor-based or not thoroughly fact-checked. And that's part of the police's job, after all, to investigate it. 
I don't want anyone to read her interview and think, oh, she's crazy. What is she talking about? Or that this is some kind of conspiracy about these other theories. No, it's just traumatized witnesses. Brandy's mother, Linda Mallinson, she would later describe April 20, 1999 as, quote, the start to what changed our lives forever. So Brandy's older sister, Monica, she was a senior at Columbine at the time. Brandy's a freshman. Monica drove them both to school that day. But Monica only stayed for the first hour. I don't know why. Brandy attended her first four classes as usual, and then she headed to her locker before going to lunch. On the way to lunch, she saw her friend, senior Isaiah Scholes, and asked him to sit with her. He told her he would meet up with her in the cafeteria after he checked out a book he needed from the library upstairs. Of course, instead, Scholes would die from a gunshot wound to the chest in the library just a short while later. After purchasing her lunch and sitting down with her friends, chaos slowly began to erupt in the cafeteria. Brandy noticed students on the opposite side of the cafeteria near the windows get down on the floor. Like many others, she initially thought the activity was part of a senior prank until someone yelled for everyone to get down. The students near the windows began to move toward her side of the room, some of them crawling. At this point, one of the shooters entered the cafeteria, and she knew it was a shooter because he had a big old gun. (laughs) He looked different. He's wearing the black trench coat. And he was coming in the cafeteria to check on one of those propane bombs that hadn't detonated. And this is when Brandy and a crowd of others fled. On her way out of the building, she heard gunfire, explosions, breaking glass, and she didn't stop until she reached a nearby apartment complex where she called her mother to pick up her and a few other students that were with her. In addition to her friend, Isaiah Scholes, Brandy lost fellow freshman classmates Daniel Rohrbaugh and Stephen Kernow in the attack. In fact, Linda Mallinson and her mother said that many of her daughter's friends died that day. While the world at large focused most of its attention on the killers and their motives, with perhaps a secondary focus on the deceased victims, Columbine survivors like Brandy began a complex healing process that went largely unreported and unrecognized. I have a few more links in the show notes in this section, specifically to give examples, if you weren't there, of just what the media was like. I mean, We have like a Time magazine where it's the monsters next door and it's the two shooters and then like teeny tiny little pictures of the victims. They get like one page in the whole Time magazine and it's all about these two guys. And then also another link about what that healing process is like for the community. That's interesting to me. Click on it if it's interesting to you do. Both of my girls were very much affected by the events of that day. Brandy's mother would later say. She attempted to connect Brandy with counseling services, but Brandy refused. She was the kind of girl that took care of others first and not herself, her mother said, and she didn't push the issue because Brandy at the time seemed to be doing okay. Everybody has that day when something in their life has changed and it's never going to be the same, Linda Mallinson recalled. Columbine is probably that day for us. Brandy was a normal little teenager until it happened. Then after Columbine, I just really think she is a victim of all of that. That was one day when it all started. It totally changed our life. It changed everyone's life. Unfortunately, the tragedy didn't end with April 20, 1999. It continued when two of Brandy's friends and fellow sophomore classmates were murdered at a local Subway sandwich shop less than a year later. Interestingly, This is the same subway where Rachel Scott, a victim of the school shooting, had worked as well. It was also located just behind the Blackjack Pizza Shop where the two shooters worked, although that part of the strip mall was converted into a private Christian school in 2002. 
probably not much investigative info there, but it struck me that this one little area was so connected to Columbine, even though it's a big area. The double murder that happened here occurred on a Sunday night on the eve of Valentine's Day, February 13, 2000. 15-year-old Nick Kunzelman got the subway job just a month prior and routinely worked the closing shift. Nick took the job when his friend Nathan Grill quit. Nathan was there that evening and left right around 10 p.m. while Nick was serving the last customer of the day. Nick's 16-year-old girlfriend, Stephanie Hart Grizel, arrived at the shop sometime after Nathan left to give Nick a ride home. So these are all the people that we know for sure were there around this time. It was normal for employees and their friends to hang out around the subway after hours, and it's possible Nick and Stephanie did that on this night too. If they weren't hanging around, Nick should have finished closing up around 10.30 p.m. At about 12.45 a.m., a female subway employee who police have never identified noticed the lights were still on inside the shop while she was driving past it. She turned around to investigate, and as she headed toward the store, she saw an approximately 5 foot 7 inch tall young white man with blonde hair leaving the area. He wore a red jacket and flared pants. She continued to the store, and that's when she discovered Nick and Stephanie's dead bodies behind the counter, and then she promptly contacted the police. The murders of two more Columbine High School students sent shockwaves across the nation as the community was still reeling from the school shooting just 10 months prior. While the school remained open and added extra security and counseling services that Monday, many students went home early after hearing about their classmates' deaths. Everyone was just crying when the announcement came on, a fellow sophomore remembered. A counselor shared the community's sense of grief and exhaustion with reporters when she said, They are just worn out from all of this, worn out from this constant stimulus, this constant barrage of tragedy. They are asking the same questions most of us are asking. When will this stop? A sheriff at the time added, we don't want the rest of the world to think this is such a horrible place. A local coffee shop owner nearby the subway store gave reporters a sense of the concern in Littleton for the community's youngest citizens. She said, I told my husband I'm ready to move away. I still go to bed with my door unlocked. I feel safe. I just don't feel safe for my kids. What a horrible feeling that has to be. I wouldn't leave my door unlocked. (laughs) That that too. (laughs) The teens' families held a joint funeral for the couple the following Saturday. Because Nick and Stephanie were so deeply in love, despite how young they were, they were even buried together. Nick told his mother... Not in the same comp, just Just side by side. Side by side. Oh my gosh, I was like, what? (laughs) Nick once told his mother that he believed Stephanie was his soulmate. This is when you read articles about them, this is the number one thing that pops up that people remember about them, just how in love they were. We have a lot more to this story, but we're going to take a quick break to bring you a special offer from our sponsor. Here at Criminal Discourse, we are excited to tell you about our partnership with Manscaped. Manscaped is a male grooming company. Let's face it, you're probably wondering why a woman is talking about Manscaped. Listen, I don't have balls, but if I did, I'd want to make sure the products I use down in the Fertile Crescent region are going to do the job. Do it efficiently, do it effectively, and make sure it doesn't leave any irritation behind. And those products are Manscaped. Check them out today and use our code CDE20. That's 20% off using our code CDP20, and you get free shipping. So if you're looking for that unique gift for someone special in your life, or you want to up your own grooming game, check out Manscaped today. 
go to manscaped.com or any of the social media platforms and put in at Manscaped and you can check out the products for yourself. Again, don't forget to use our code CDP20. And as Manscaped claims, your balls will thank you. Now back to our episode. Both were very athletic. Many considered them to be transplants of another era. If you look at their pictures, they kind of look like hippies. They seemed like they were kids of the 60s, peace and love generation more than their own. The pastor who led their service had conducted funerals for four of Columbine's victims less than a year before. I can tell you these have been the saddest moments of my life, he shared with reporters. Dozens of Columbine students attended Nick and Stephanie's funeral, including some who were still recovering from injuries they suffered in the school shooting. Nick and Stephanie both survived the infamous shooting as freshmen. Nick's mother said he was more affected by it than he liked to admit, and she was devastated to learn that he had escaped one shooting just to die in another, especially so soon. She recalled that after hearing the news, I screamed and said, no, no, this can't be happening. I have no idea what happened, and I want to know why. So the two teenagers had died from gunshot wounds, but police haven't revealed the condition of their bodies or any particulars related to the crime scene. Police did share that they searched trash bins and nearby buildings, but they never found a discarded weapon. And I don't know how common that really is to find a discarded weapon, really. There was a surveillance camera inside the subway that could have caught the murder, but police have never said if it was helpful. Employees of the subway shop said it's unlikely that it was helpful because the camera was hardly ever turned on, which great. Police interviewed several other potential witnesses and collected physical evidence from the scene. From these efforts, police did say they felt they had crucial evidence in the investigation within just a few days of the murders. But because it's unsolved, they've kept it close to the vest, since it's only information that Nick and Stephanie's killer would know. Autopsy results, search warrants, absolutely everything remains sealed. Police did quickly publicize the description of the man the other subway employee saw when she discovered Nick and Stephanie's bodies, but at first they wouldn't even say if he was a suspect or just someone who might have more information. By the time of the couple's funeral, so like a week later, police released two composite drawings of a suspect, and we do have that linked in the show notes, and he was described as a white male between 16 and 18 years old. The Subway Sandwich Shop initially offered a $10,000 reward for information that led to an arrest, and with the help of Metro Denver Crime Stoppers, that reward was increased to $12,000 and then, in 2021, to $100,000. Jefferson County Sheriff Jeff Schrader said in 2021, quote, With this significantly increased reward, people who haven't come forward with their information will be much more likely to do so now. We are continuing our diligent work to bring justice to Nicholas and Stephanie. If they have received tips, it's been a year and a half. There's been no new information or leads that they've pursued that I know of. After quickly ruling out a murder-suicide, police considered a possible robbery motive for their murders, but employees at the shop don't think that's feasible. One staff member reported that there was maybe 50 bucks in the register at any given time. Workers would insert large bills into a locked safe throughout the day, and then only the store manager had the key to that. Police have never confirmed if any money was stolen. And I guess if you're going to go rob the subway, I wouldn't think that there would be a ton of money at a sandwich shop, but if you don't work there, you don't really know how much there is or isn't. Police also considered a drug-related motive for the murders, since some local kids were known to use and sell marijuana out of the subway shop. 
However, the teenagers' families strongly denied that either of them used or dealt drugs. We don't really know for sure. And police have not officially connected drugs to their killings. The only justice that's come out of Nick and Stephanie's case so far was an $18,625 fine levied against the Subway sandwich shop owner, Hartman Enterprises, Inc. In July 2000, the United States Department of Labor found the shop in violation of child labor laws, which don't allow employees under the age of 18 to work past 7 p.m. Yeah, I did find that interesting because you said he was only 15. Yeah. And I'm like, well, wait, how's he there late at night closing up? By himself. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as Brandy Mallinson is processing her friend's unsolved murder, she's also busy supporting her grieving living friends. Even though the tragedies were taking a toll on her, Brandy's mother, Linda, says that she, quote, wasn't one that wanted help. I really tried to get her into counseling and do different things, but she was always the one to reach out to friends. She was the hugger and wanted to take care of you. It may not surprise you that as many Columbine students and their families coped with the aftermath of the shooting, a few unfortunately succumbed to suicide. What may surprise you, and this surprised me, is that suicide has troubled the Littleton community before and since the school shooting. Studies from the late 1990s ranked Colorado near the top of the list nationally for suicide rates, hypothesizing that things like isolation, lack of mental health care, and easier access to firearms were contributing factors. In fact, that easy access to firearms is part of the contributing factors in the school shooting. More recent studies continue to note that Colorado and the Denver metro area, including Littleton, has one of the highest suicide rates in the country. So 20 years later, this is still a problem. It's unclear to me whether there was a definitive spike in suicides post-Columbine, but there are some tragic known cases of it. If this is a sensitive topic for you, we are about to talk about two of them. (laughs) On Friday morning, October 22nd, 1999, 48-year-old Carla Hochholter became one of them. Her daughter, Columbine Jr. Anne Marie Hochholter, was paralyzed during the school shooting by a bullet that severed her spine. Carla went to a local pawn shop. She asked to examine a handgun. She loaded it with bullets, and then she shot herself in the head. Carla died at the same hospital that saved her daughter's life just six months prior. And she did this in the pawn shop. In the pawn shop, Mm. in front of the owner. Then on a Thursday morning, May 4th, 2000, 17-year-old Greg Barnes hanged himself in his family's garage with an electrical cord. This was a morning before school. He was a sophomore at Columbine when the shooting happened, and he lost his close friend Matt Kector that day. He also witnessed teacher and coach Dave Sanders being shot. He was in a classroom and saw Sanders shot through the door. The day after his death, after news reached the community, about a third of Columbine High School student population stayed home from school to grieve his loss. I'm not sure if Brandy Mallinson was one of those students who stayed home. I don't know how well she knew Greg, if they were friends. He was an athlete. Nick Kunzelman was too, so possibly. I do know this, though. After surviving a school shooting that drew global attention her freshman year, her sophomore year was marked by her two friends' unsolved murders and two high-profile suicides connected to the school shooting that she survived. So this is going to take some kind of toll. Mm -hmm. And we know from Brandy's mother, Linda, that she coped by helping other people and was likely not paying attention to the effect that these tragedies were having on her. Linda recounts yet another suicide that affected her daughter in a devastatingly personal way during her junior year on November 10, 2000. So this is just eight months after her two friends are murdered, still unsolved. 
17-year-old Brandy is at work. A close friend of hers leaves a message on her phone. Brandy was the last person he called before committing suicide. I haven't been able to identify this person, but between the school shooting, the murders, and this very close-to-home suicide, Brandy's mother said all three of these horrible tragedies devastated her. And I, I can't imagine. In March of 2002, this was Brandy's senior year. She's about to graduate. She was arrested for misdemeanor theft. But there was no reason I could find to believe that more serious trouble was looming. I can't find the specifics about this event, but it doesn't seem to be part of a pattern at the time. I'm not excusing shoplifting or whatever it may have been, but sometimes this happens with teenagers and then it goes away. She was a very responsible girl, purchased her own car on her own, always paid her bills on time is what her mother said. So it doesn't seem to be part of a pattern of going downhill. Brandy did graduate high school, and she became a certified nurse's assistant afterward. She was turning her natural gifts of caring for other people into a career. She held two jobs when she started taking nursing classes, which is a lot. (laughs) And in her last position, she had moved in with her elderly multiple sclerosis patient to provide her care. She was very serious about it. Unfortunately, a friend in Brandy's nursing classes had introduced her to methamphetamine, as a way to cope with her trauma, handle her mounting responsibilities, and help her lose weight. Her father remembered Brandy really struggling with the deaths of her friends at this time, as if starting finally to feel the emotional weight of it. He said, I think she was overwhelmed with all that stuff. All that hurt had a big impact on her. As Brandy slipped into addiction, her relationship with her parents changed. They staged an intervention and finally connected her with counseling services. But as an adult, there was not a whole lot they could do whenever she decided to leave home and use drugs. Then on December 22, 2006, at 23 years old, Brandy received probation after an arrest for drug possession and identity theft. It seems like the arrest was a wake-up call. Brandy told her parents she was committed to getting off drugs, taking control of her life. They believed her. Her mother remembers that she was just so sad. And it hurts so bad to see her like this. Then on December 26, four days later, and the day after celebrating Christmas with her family, Brandy told her parents that she was going to a friend's house. And when she didn't return for several days, her family assumed she was shirking her probation requirements. And it was common for Brandy to disappear for a period of time like this. So they're assuming she's falling back into addiction. Yep. A month later, however, a man called the Mallinson home to report that someone had killed Brandy and dumped her body in the Platte River up in Nebraska, a few hours north of Littleton. And this prompted the family to file a missing persons report. Police reached out to all of Brandy's friends, and they heard a number of stories about what may have happened. None of those leads panned out. Some said she was killed. Others say she overdosed. Her body was dumped in the mountains or a lake. Just a number of different theories. When they said she was skirting probation, Mm -hmm. did they notify her probation officer right away when she didn't return home? It doesn't say. Okay. I get the impression, no. But they did report her then once this person contacted them. But I would think if she missed was missing for a month and didn't check in with probation, her probation officer would have been like, what's going on? You know what, though? I would assume if she had probation and her home address was her parents' house, the probation officer should be showing up. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's usually on probation. You have to check in each month Mm -hmm. with your probation officer. Mm -hmm. So maybe also this is a case of the probation officer just assuming the same thing. That she's just out using drugs. Right. 
So like the case of her friends, Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Hart Grizel, there haven't been any new details or information in the nearly 16 years since Brandy Mallinson went missing. Her mother, Linda, hasn't moved. She hasn't changed her home phone number because she hopes that Brandy or someone who knows what happened to her will reach out. In 2012, she set up a Facebook page to help find answers and keep attention on Brandy's case. We linked that Facebook page in our show notes, and it is still active. She posts there a few times at least every year. I want closure, her mother says. It's just a sad situation. I don't want anyone to ever go through what we've gone through. And this this part in particular really stands out for me and makes me love Linda. She says, I'm a very forgiving person. Even if somebody said I did that to her or helped her with that, I'd probably forgive them because I know they're going through a lot. You can't let that be down on your soul. So she's even able to empathize with whatever happened, the circumstances. She just wants to know. I would guess that Nick and Stephanie's parents feel the same too. They just want to know what happened to their kids. Now, since covering Brandy, Nick, and Stephanie's cases for me was all about bringing attention to victims who've been overshadowed by this bigger news story, I also wanted to shed a little light on the victims who don't even have that headline-worthy connection to the Columbine school shooting. And we can't possibly cover them all in depth, but since they all deserve justice in an attempt to keep attention on their cases too, here's our incomplete list if you want to research further on any of these unsolved cases. So there's Marilee Burt, She was abducted on February 26, 1970, while walking home from a Littleton Junior High basketball game. She was 15 years old, and her naked, raped, and strangled body turned up the next day in Deer Creek Canyon. Now, they have her killer's DNA, but they have yet to find a match and make an arrest. Then there's Melissa Chase. She was discovered under a bridge in Littleton on December 7, 1983. She was 18 years old, and she had been beaten to death after she was reported missing just the day before. There's Nancy Shoup. She went missing on April 28, 1990. The 27-year-old was last seen leaving a male co-worker's home in Boulder and was supposed to pick up her children from her estranged husband Stephen's house. Shoup never arrived and she was never heard from again. Her car was found at her home in Littleton and authorities suspect Shoup was murdered and her ex-husband is their prime suspect. Then, three people were shot to death at a Littleton bowling alley on January 27, 2002. Their names were Robert Zajac, he was 23, Aaron Gulla, 26, and James Springer, 29. With the FBI assisting the investigation and recently discovered DNA evidence, there may soon be a break in this unsolved case. It's been rumored that this is the same bowling alley the Columbine shooters frequented because both are AMF alleys, but I just want to clarify they are actually two different locations. And adding to the eerie connections, in addition to this shooting occurring less than three years after Columbine, the shooter at this incident also wore a trench coat during the attack. So there's a few things, the bowling aspect, the trench coat, the time frame that kind of connect that one to Columbine a little bit too. Then there's Rhonda Holland. She was murdered at the gift shop she owned in Littleton. She was 46 years old, and she was stabbed while closing her store on January 17, 2004. There's Jamie Villarreal, who was killed by a gunman in Littleton on March 17, 2016, while he was sitting in his work truck. Authorities are seeking two male suspects who they saw on surveillance video around the time of his death. He was 23 years old at the time. And then finally, the most recent one I could find was Cadence Warner. She was 17, and on her birthday, she ran away from her Littleton home. 
That was March 23rd, 2021. I'm sorry, just one month before her 17th birthday. She was 16 at the time. So if you have any information about Brandy Joe, Nick, Stephanie, any of those other unsolved cases, please reach out. You can do so anonymously. The place to go to is Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. They have a website, metrodenvercrimestoppers.com. They have a phone number, 720-913-7867. Again, if you want to be anonymous, that's perfectly fine. I guess you just, you never know if you have that one piece of information, if it's significant or new, it could be that missing piece that brings closure. Guess just don't assume if it's too trivial, just share. That's right. Well, that's our tagline, right? If you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. I will say these law enforcement authorities in this area are busy. They're very busy. (laughs) Jefferson County are busy. That's a lot. That really is. And we've talked about that before, that there is such a ripple effect with people being murdered, school shootings. It just doesn't, like you said, there's not just the killers. There's not just the victims. There's the survivors. There's the families. There's the community at large. And I think that's one thing that this episode shows, Mm -hmm. such the ripple effect of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest part of that, if we are connecting it to Columbine, which I can't say is that shooting is the whole reason why all of this started. I don't know that that's the case. But even Columbine, you have this sense of we know who did it. We know exactly what they did. But there's still this feeling that we don't fully understand it. You know, how could kids who seemed like, you know, maybe idiots, maybe they had issues, but were otherwise just somewhat normal seeming teenage boys flip a switch and do something like this. And I think we still struggle with that. That podcast episode I recommended, they get into a little bit talking about the term of, you know, labeling people with psychopath and distancing ourselves. And they kind of turn it into a conversation about, you know, maybe it's it's the fact that we feel like these are monsters, And these are psychopaths and they're not like us at all. That creates so much distance that we can't ever understand it. I don't know the answers. Go listen to their episode for that. But yeah, there's a lot of ripple effects of Columbine out there. Sadly. (laughs) It's incredibly sad. It is incredibly sad. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. If you've enjoyed this episode or found it interesting, let us know. Reach out to us through all the various means you can do so. Of course, our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find the show notes. You will find all the resources. I clicked on some of the links while Wendy was sharing this story. You can see the composite sketches. You can see the Facebook page that was set up for Brandy Joe by her mother. I think the last post I saw was October 2021. Yeah. And again, if you have that information, reach out to Denver Crime Stoppers. You never know. You never know. You can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta at Criminal Dis Pod. We have Twitter. We have YouTube at Criminal Pod on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And we would only ask whatever platform you're listening to us on. If you could subscribe, that'd be great. And if you could leave us a review, that would be even better. All right, guys, as always, we want you to stay safe out there, but we also need to look out for one another and be kind to one another. So until next time, bye. bye.